Um, morning, ladies and gentlemen. In the interest of time, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead with the next session. Uh, I must say, Colin von Sale is very convincing. Um, I'm, as some of you may know, I'm on a sabbatical at the moment, but he uh, convinced me to get up very early and come through from Pretoria. So I don't normally get up at five at the moment, but, but anyway, <laughs> hopefully it will be worthwhile, um, the discussion. Um, we've got um, quite an experienced uh, set of panelists here, so um, and I've worked with many of you o over the years, and we here to discuss the TCF journey, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So let me just give you a, a brief comment on, on each of the panelists. Um, Paul Trains uh, qualified as an actuary in 1977. Uh, he worked for Southern Life for 21 years. Um, and Paul and I got to know each other uh, when Momentum and Southern uh, uh, merged. Um, Paul was in product development and later became uh, appointed actuary of Southern. Afterwards, he spent five years in Amsterdam with PwC as an actuarial auditor. Um, in 2009, he joined the board of Old Mutual and he gained extensive further experience, uh, amongst other things, chairing the customer affairs committees. And uh, Paul is a very experienced actuary and, amongst other things, he uh, was president of the actuarial site in the year 2000. Uh, so thanks for being here, Paul. Uh, Giles, when I read your, your brief CV, I realized you've got a great sense of humor. Um, it's also been great working with Giles over many years as a consultant. He's a great consultant to, to work with, but also very, very experienced. So Giles was born in Kenya, but emigrated at the age of one and a half and pursued a career in education in the UK. <laughs> After graduation, he read about actuarial science, which sounded like it might be interesting. He then spent two years in pensions, but fortunately was transferred to life. <laughs> he became a consultant when his insurance company employer decided to relocate out of London three weeks after he had bought a house. Um, he came to South Africa for a six-month secondment 22 years ago. Uh, so, and he spends quite a bit of time in Africa. So thanks for being here, Giles. Um, Nina Larish uh, is an audit partner uh, on the, the far end there. In the Deloitte Cape Town practice, she's the leader of the Western Cape Financial Services team and has successfully led the risk advisory practice and the, and the Africa Governance Service line for many years. She's uh, known for her work um, uh, in, amongst other areas, uh, conduct risk, ethics management and, and governance. So thanks, Nina, for being here. And last but not least, Johan Leroux um, started at, at Sunlam, qualified as an actually in 1992, coincidentally the same year as that I qualified. So that's many, many years ago. Johan spent the early years of his career in the valuations department. In the late 1990s, he, uh, he joined Momentum in, in, in Centurion uh, at different roles, but uh, uh, sort of was responsible for the Momentum segment. And then in 20, 2015, uh, took early retirement to, to do uh, lots of other things, amongst other things, studying ethics. But he could not really... Uh, uh, break his links with the corporate world. So in 2018, uh, he was appointed, well, recently a CEO of Momentum Life. So, uh, Johan, thanks, thanks for being here, and we, we'll hear some comments about ethics um, as well. So as you know, uh, TCF is an outcomes-based regulatory approach designed to ensure that specific, uh, clearly articulated, fearless outcomes are delivered for financial services customers. Firms are expected to deliver six TCF outcomes to customers throughout their product, product life cycle. Now, um, 
I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, know that the six DCF outcomes, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through them. I'll just quickly page through them for you to look at, and hopefully the panelists can, throughout the comments, refer to some of the outcomes. I guess the critical point here is it's practical outcomes and outcomes throughout the life cycle, you know, the product life cycle. So I guess from point of sale right to the end, to the claim stage. Clearly, culture plays a, a big role, information plays a big role, advice is, is important, policy orders, reasonable expectations is important, and then clearly there uh, they need to be no, or all post-sale barriers need to be removed. So let's, uh, let's start the discussion, and hopefully uh, there will be time at the end for some questions from the floor. So as we go through the discussion, please start thinking about the question you want to ask any of the, of the, of the panelists. So let's start by just looking at the practical implications of the introduction of TCF. And if you look at uh, different approaches adopted by companies as far as product development is concerned, have we noticed any changes in product design as a result of the introduction of TCF? Uh, Paul, can you maybe start commenting on that? Is this uh, mic on? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, um, so as Nicholas said, I was on the, I was chairman of the old mutual life assurance company's uh, committee for customer forwards, a, bo a board subcommittee, um, which was a, a natural home for overseeing the implementation of TCF, both as, a, as, a, as if you like, a, a, a project that had to be embarked on, and typical of all these enormous projects uh, required lots of uh, management, persuasion, um, yeah. But I think uh, the crucial thing was that as being a board subcommittee, I was able to, we were able to ask questions of management and, you know, they couldn't ignore us. And so when we wanted, where we wanted to see practical changes occur, both in product and in, in service and in and other aspects of the product life cycle, uh, we were able to make it real. The danger of TCF is that, that people um, imagine what it actually means to treat customers fairly, but everybody thinks they're really treating their customers fairly. And uh, it's only when you really um, put individual circumstances, claims, complaints, um, the newspaper allegations, whatever, to the test uh, under these uh, outcomes will you really quickly realize that it's much more than a simple uh, thing. And as I said uh, at the meeting on Tuesday, I think um, it's a culture change, but my, uh, my experience in life has shown me that uh, culture and attitude changes much quicker when behavior has to change um, than, um, uh, than just talking and trying to persuade people. Um, I, I think apart as a classic example, um, when, when white people had to live side by side with black people, they realized that they could do so and that they were perfectly able to do so. Um, before that, you could never persuade somebody to want to um, live side by side with people of color. So, um, and then there's one particular um, aspect that we that we led. We, it was also led us to realize that the life insurance industry in South Africa is effectively being captured by the advisor force for many, many, many years. Um, and so, for example, if you wanted to know what was a good product, I, I saw it in product development, you'd ask the brokers, "What do you think is a good product to sell?" You never go and talk to the ultimate policyholder. And Mutual threw that over and said, we, we, to do our customer value proposition work, we're now going to talk to customers rather than um, and, 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 and advisors. And I'll come back later to, uh, to refer again to this fact that we're still, in a lot of ways, captured by the 
advisory um, body and, and not, the, I mean, not looking at the customers as the end consumers. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Paul. Uh, Nino, do you want to add anything that you've seen in practice, any changes in product development practices? So maybe I'll start with, uh, I came from Cape Town this morning, so I got up a bit earlier than you. But, um, the, um, I, I, I had the but you're not on sabbatical. Eh? <laughs> yeah, that makes it worse. The, I, um, yeah, so, so in the context of TCF, and, and Peter alluded to it earlier, some of us were on the panel on, in, in Cape Town on, on Tuesday as well. So, so I think there was a long discussion around culture. And... And I think perhaps what we're talking about here is treating customers fairly, but it is also moving towards, for me, conscious capitalism. And this notion that, that one can, can make money while doing good. The two are not mutually exclu uh, exclusive, and, um, and we should focus on that. And I, I know the latest speaker on, on Zing um, covered some of that topic in, in Cape Town, and, and there was a specific question around, you do it for the greater good, but you've patented the, the, the concept, not taking anything from, from his speech. And, and I think that's exactly in, in what, where it lies to me, that, that we should move away from thinking we can't make money while, while doing good. Now, now in that, that context, um, we refer to fair products earlier, because the question is really, really centered around product development. And, and in my years of consulting in this space, nobody thinks that their products are unfair. But if you ask them, will you sell this to your sister, then the answer is very often, in, I, I will, but X, Y, Z. And I, I think that's a bit of a test for us to say, is it really fair? And, and I think for me, some of the biggest changes we've seen was a, a far more holistic approach to considering the customer need in the product development cycle. And, and I don't think it was drastic. I don't think we saw many products simply being cancelled or anything like that. But I think there were tweaks, and those tweaks were, were, were very necessary by the time the regulation hit South Africa. Yeah, yeah th thank you very much for that. Um, Johan, uh, uh, I'd like you to uh, comment on the, I guess I'm going to ask the next two questions together. Um, Give us examples of, of success stories uh, that you've been involved with where applying TCF made a positive difference to customer outcomes, but then I guess at the same time, maybe also just give us uh, your, your view on a story that that's not really helped at all, where uh, an example, which uh, an area which is in fact uh, where TCF has uh, hindered real change. So give us a positive and a, and, and a negative. Looks like, looks like I'm getting all the interesting questions, especially the second one, Niklas. Maybe, I think starting with the first one, um, obviously been involved with many, I think, legacy books, you know, over the years. I think that's where many of these interesting conversations actually live and, 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 I mean, it's just practice changes and you need to acknowledge that, you know, how do you deal with those interesting challenges? Now, I've seen many, I think, repricing. On, on, on legacy products, you know, we've had some forced by regulatory intervention. When was that statement of intent exercise? The ten years, no, it's quite a while ago. But even then, you know, being part of many uh, company that was involved with many mergers, I think, often just decided to to improve something like Serena values and and being part of many conversations around fair practice committee meetings where the board actually decided to to um, 
uh, reduce fees you know, on, on existing books and, or make changes that are also applicable. So there are many examples, and I think TCF did play, play a role in that. Um, your second question, I think, is a bit tough. Uh, you know, what can go wrong? And I, I, I think maybe at risk of sounding a bit philosophical, the interesting thing for me um, is actually, I think, outcome five. And, and uh, that's the one that speaks to, uh, uh, you know, uh, products must perform as expected, you know, by clients. What do you do when, when that does not happen, you know, when products don't perform uh, according to expectations? Now, what I'm trying to say is, what's the consequences? And it's almost as if we're saying, and so it's not what can go wrong, I'm, I'm more asking the question, it's as if we're saying, uh, uh, you know, there should be some consequence, you know, when products don't perform according to expectations. Now, should there be a consequence if, if the organization has done really, you know, tried its best for that product to perform according to expectations, you know, clearly the client's disappointed. Should there be some form of retribution? So what TCF, I'm asking around TCF, is, is, it, is it blurring the lines between customer consequences when products, obviously you need to meet your obligations. I mean, there's no question about that. If you don't meet your obligations, I think we can argue the customer is wrong. You need to settle that, that definitely. But if, if the product, uh, products don't perform according to expectations, you know, clearly there's a disappointment in the room, but should there be some consequence? And I think we're struggling with that at the moment. So maybe a metaphor might be, you know, I don't have daughters, but let's say if I had a daughter, you know, you, you, she goes out maybe in grade 12 on a on a date with a boyfriend and you as a father will say, listen, you know, won't you be back 12 o'clock tonight? Now, is that an expectation or an obligation? You know? And what are the consequences when she's not back 12 o'clock, you know, uh, at home? Now, depending on who you speak to and which family structure you have, you'll have different, uh, different results. I think, for me, this battle between uh, uh, should there be redress when you don't meet expectations versus not meeting obligations, which clearly you need to do something. I think we struggle with that um, a little bit. Yeah, sure. Sure, Nino. So I, I completely agree with the, the, the meeting expectations, but I think, and it possibly applied to the metaphor as well, the question is whether, I think it's easier to manage the expectation if the product is well understood. And, and I think if we don't deal with understanding but properly, it is far more difficult to manage that expectation. So, so for me, there's, there's really three questions here. Did the customer need the product? Did he understand the product? And did he get what, he, what was promised? And, and sometimes what was promised is not what he hoped for. But did he understand the product well enough to know that that, that hope has risk in? So, so I, think, I think for me the crux lie in that managing the understanding. Okay, that's, that's quite helpful. Thanks, thanks very much. Uh, Giles, I uh, want you to comment, uh, we've got a room full of actuaries, so, so the role of the profession. Please give us your view, what role should the profession play to change industry approaches? Um, and at the same time, can you comment on uh, industry practices that may come back to bite us and where the profession has got a particular duty? Okay, uh, right, so my job to tell you what to do. The um, Okay, my, my feeling is that the profession's heart is in the right place. I, th I think uh, when I look around the room, lots of people I know that um, um, want to do the right thing by our, our customers. Um, 
but I'm not sure we've managed to put that into action particularly well. Um, so um, I, when I look at the practices in the credit life space, um, I've, I feel as if the actual profession which had a role to play has not played it. Um, so, um, and, and that is actually um, true in South Africa. So, um, so one area of legislation where um, um, product regulation has had to happen outside the Life Insurance Act because um, we, we haven't got it right. Um, and, um, but it's actually also true elsewhere in the world. Um, we're watching now the Royal Commission in um, Australia um, uh, pinpointing quite nicely the failures of um, uh, banks in their selling of credit insurance. So, so it's, um, it's, it's a global failure, and I think we've got to think quite hard how we should put, what practice we should put into place uh, to avoid um, the kind of errors that actually have, uh, have already happened and to spot the things that are already uh, still happening um, before we have our own, well, obviously we can't have a royal commission, but whatever commission it would be. Um, I, th I think the one area that, that uh, I would pinpoint, uh, um, obviously outcome five uh, has been highlighted, I would actually highlight outcome three, uh, which is, um, in case you don't remember it, uh, that customers are, are given clear information and kept appropriately informed before, during, and after the time of contracting. Okay, my, my um, uh, dictum is you cannot underestimate the level of ignorance that the average consumer has about financial products. So um, I have um, had the pleasure of explaining the product that my parents had already bought to them and these are two university graduates. Um, the, uh, it needs to be explained and re-explained and examples given. And um, uh, somebody said uh, on, um, when in Cape Town, um, th there's no consumer bodies doing that explaining. Um, uh, we, we, we go straight from what the uh, life insurance companies offer through to hellopeter.com without uh, all that consumerism um, uh, helping uh, customers to choose the right product. Um, and uh, I wonder whether the actuaries have a role to play to promote um, that consumerism, not, not to um, do down their companies, but actually to help their companies sell the right kind of product. Uh, Paul, as a, as a very experienced actuary and past president of the Actuarial Society, uh, some comments from you on the role of the profession and then also industry practices that may come back to bite us. Yeah, um, I think Giles, he reversed the order of answering this question, so Giles was able to steal my thunder. Um, so, yes, I believe that in the absence of um, a BA regulator who, um, who doesn't understand that his main job is probably the consumer education rather than brandishing the whip at us, and in the, in the absence of, of really knowledgeable financial consumer journalists, yeah, the closest we had to one was that gentleman who ran the, the Argus for many, many years. 
that he's retired, but even so, he wasn't necessarily as knowledgeable. I think we, uh, the society, can, and now we've got the, 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 A, the funds, B, we've got enough people working, uh, studying at university and working for companies who are not beholden, or they feel they're not beholden to their uh, life insurance employers. We should actually fulfill that role. And I, I did suggest it to the president on Tuesday that you should really consider seriously that I believe that if you were to do a survey of all the current members of ASA and ask them, putting, putting the, the issue in the back, uh, in, highlighting the issues, that they, they would all, I think, agree that the, the society is probably the best placed body in the country to do so. And I urge um, the council and members to really consider how we can do that. I've got a particular pet hobby that you've heard me talk about many times where I think we, uh, we're going to be bitten badly, and that's in the living annuity area. Um, just dug up some statistics from ASISA. The latest one was 2016. There are already 500,000 living annuitants in this country. They've already invested over 400 billion rands. And remember, these are not voluntary purchases. These are just people who had this money maturing in a retirement annuity or a, another pension vehicle and were persuaded, um, often, often as not because of their own ignorance, to place their money at risk in a living annuity as opposed to buying what we've always been here for, uh, providing certainty through insurance via a, a conventional annuity. The average size of that investment, if you don't do the sum yourself, 400 billion divided by 500,000, is just under a million each. We know for a fact that if you've got a million rand only in your living annuity, um, unless you draw 4%, um, you're not going to survive. Even if you draw 4%, you're, not, you're going to have a tough standard of living. So the, the, the problem always is um, you either start retirement poor and you keep that level of poverty in real terms by having the right drawdown rate, or you hope that things will change in the future. You, you, you start your drawdown rate at some level that you can possibly survive on, and then you hope that that doesn't go worse. I think we as an actual profession should be spelling out the latter more and more. Um, Peter Worthy gave me a good example this morning. He believes that before a, a, a annuitant is allowed to apply and, and sign up for a living annuity, his, his children should actually sign as well to say that we're willing to take the long-term risk that if <laughs> your money runs out, we'll support you. In, in return for the benefit, which is so... Um, uh, uh, spoken about of these things that if you die early we can get a windfall um, legacy uh, award. Um, I don't think we do enough as a profession to continue to point out the dangers and I think we should in the light of some sort of consumer which uh, I don't know if you guys from the UK remember the consumer which magazine start literally um, giving red, orange and green uh, stickers to the products and to annuity um, strategies and to run down things. We should be willing to challenge the advisor industry and the, and the living annuity industry. Thank you. Nicholas, can I just maybe... Sure, just, just a thought that crossed my mind on this point. I think, interesting when, you, when you, we ask the question, you know, what should the profession do? You know, to, and I think uh, I, I agree with um, uh, Paul's sentiments, but I, one must also acknowledge that the profession consists of the members of ASA. And, and the members of ASA makes up the profession. So I think I would actually say answering that same, or asking that question, you're also asking what should the members of ASA do to actually you know, make a difference. And I think 
to me, if, 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 if you want to change things, you need to engage the problem. And I would also, you know, answer that question saying that, you know, it should also be a call to members to actually, you know, apply their mind on these things as much as it is also the profession. But by not engaging, you're not going to change anything. So I think the key is to actually engage. You, you, on while you, um, you've got the floor, maybe you can also just comment on, on ethics. I mean, you've got a specific passion for ethics, Johan, that's something for, for the studies and, and our... How are we going to introduce that subject into the actuarial syllabus and, uh, and how do we link that up with uh, our TCF obligations? Well, three questions. Yeah. <laughs> didn't expect this. Now, I think uh, um, did you th I think if, TCF is one component of ethics. Maybe just start there. So I'm not having a moral conversation. I think uh, uh, they mix views in the in the, in the academic discipline of ethics, whether ethics equals morals or vice versa, let's not have that conversation. I think there's strong arguments for both. But I think for me, what's important about TCF that clearly articulates the view from the consumer perspective. But ethics is also about balancing the interests of all stakeholders. So as much as you need to be fair to clients, you need to be fair to the other stakeholders. I think, Nina, you hinted at that also. How you do that, I think, is actually the key thing, because ethics is about action. Now, what we do from a, from a, uh, um, what we do now in the professionalism course is at least vest some of these thinking practices, you know, in the process. But eventually, every problem is quite unique. But I think the essence of of, of thinking, uh, solving problems from the perspective of the client. You asked the question right in the beginning about product changes. I see the way where the world is going. Um, just business processes, the, the digitization of business processes, the kind of user testing mindset that come with those things. I think more and more it's becoming a more natural part of the conversation. But for me, it's actually looking at, at, at the interest from all stakeholders, and you need to know where to draw the line. I think that will be key for me. Uh, Nina, any comment from you on, on ethics? Yes, so, so maybe just on the previous comment, it's about treating all stakeholders fairly. I, I remember sitting in a workshop at one of the, the large insurers one day and about two hours in somebody got up and said, and what happened to treating shareholders fairly? So I guess there's, that, that it is important to find that balance, but, but maybe reflecting on the, on the industry and the profession and, and coming from an auditor at this point in time in South Africa to speak about ethics is, is rich if you listen to the general media, but I, but I, I, I do think that, that as, as actuaries, you are the leaders of the insurance industry in South Africa, and therefore the responsibility to manage the culture in those organizations rests with you. It is in the product design, and it is in understanding the product, but as, as leaders of the industry, there, there is a huge responsibility in instilling a culture that, that demands fair consideration for all stakeholders. And, and perhaps as, a, as somebody that moves between companies, I can, I can hear the, the speak in the organization. I can compare the four large insurance, for example, and, and, and I get a feeling for, for what the culture is like in all of that, and that in, in, all, in all four firms or, or other firms as well. So I think it is important that we, that we work on that, particularly with with new generations coming through and, and Generation Z wanting social justice and want to administer justice socially. In that context, I think it's very important as a profession to focus on ethics, to focus on fair outcomes, and to instill a culture that speaks to that generational expectation. 
Excellent. Uh, just, just another one question, and then we're going to open up to the floor. So please start getting your questions ready. Uh, Giles, according to your CV, you spend quite a bit of time in Africa. Uh, and now, TCF uh, applies in South Africa from a regulatory point of view, but we've got many groups in South Africa with uh, subsidiaries across the African continent where we might be a few years behind from a TCF point of view. So what advice have you, have you got uh, you know, for these uh, groups that, that, that uh, operate in different geographies? Um, should we apply the same TCF standards irrespective of uh, what's required by the regulator? Uh, okay, uh, well, I, I don't really have to give any advice because I, I think those standards are already being put into practice anyway um, uh, for most of the uh, South African subsidiaries, and, and that applies to other international subsidiary, uh, uh, sorry, other companies in Africa which are um, subsidiaries of multinationals. So, so um, uh, maybe not in exactly the same format as uh, a TCF program, uh, but, but um, a lot of um, uh, assessment of reputational risk, um, a lot of analysis of customer complaints, so, so, um, and particularly uh, complaints that go to the regulator. So, 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 so uh, uh, companies, um, subsidiaries are aware. Um, the rather more interesting one is um, uh, freestanding companies, if I can put it that way, the, 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 the companies that, that um, some of us serve that, that are um, based in uh, another country. Um, and um, uh, what should we, um, maybe as actually serving them, uh, be doing for those companies? Um, I, th I think first thing to say is to assume that companies um, are amoral just because they're not based in South Africa is incorrect. <laughs> the, um, uh, I uh, see uh, the same standards uh, um, being applied uh, across the board in an industry, um, at least the same spirit of the standards, but maybe without the same um, sort of uh, background and um, knowledge of, of what should be applied. Um, uh, but but um, I, I, think, um, uh, I, th I think one thing I said in Cape Town is that we need to um, uh, maintain our strong sense of what's right and what's wrong and be prepared to say it, um, even in circumstances where it's uncomfortable. Um, uh, I, I don't think I'm good enough at that, um, and um, I would challenge myself as, as well as anybody else to uh, uh, be courageous even when it might cost you your appointment. Thanks very much. Uh, questions from the floor? Um, you're welcome to direct your question at a particular panelist or to the panel in general. Um, Andrew? Andrew? Good morning, Andrew LaRue. So I'm still chewing a bit on, on the first presentation. I don't know if Ian Cruikshank is still here. Um, I didn't get to put my question to him, but, but there's some of, of what he said that I would probably personally strongly have agreed with 10 years ago and that I now very strongly disagree with. And I, in the context of TCF, I think that the challenge for us is to continue to be intellectually and morally courageous in asking questions because the world is not standing still. And our social context is not standing still, and technology is not standing still. So that's just kind of my, my observation in this debate. There are things that, that probably, with due rigor, uh, was signed off and so on at some point in the past. 
but as actuaries, we, I think, run the risk of, of uh, continuing to, 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 to drink the same Kool-Aid that we drank before, and I think that's something we have to be deliberate and intentional about, is to continue to ask the questions and to continue to create a culture in our companies where probably youngsters coming in asking questions uh, don't just have to toe the line from, from the top, but uh, can honestly engage. Can I, can I make a comment there? Yeah, sure. Paul? Um, I think you're absolutely right. And what, what, what opened the, for my own personal views, you know, also came from the old traditional product development. And I said earlier, you asked the salesman what, what product to sell. What struck me when you, started, when you start actually having a TCF mindset, when you get a report, you look at it differently. So I'm going to give you an, an, a, a, a true example. It's anecdotal, but it's true. Um, the company that I'm on the board of in Kenya, a life insurance company, has had, on its individual lifestyle, it has had continuous, for the seven years I've been there, uh, very good mortality experience, positive mortality experience. The actual response to that was to change the assumptions to reflect that lower mortality experience. His first question wasn't, why are we having such a low mortality experience? And when you dig a little bit, very simply, it's because people aren't claiming. Widows don't know their husband took out policies, the whole process is inefficient, and, and, uh, and there's also a cultural attitude so for, you know, of, of not, in fact, not believing that insurance companies will pay out. And that's, that's a vicious circle because that's why you can't sell policies. But just having, in my own mindset, having a different way that I looked at those numbers, I saw expected deaths 14, actual deaths 1, in the old days, I would have said, wow, fantastic mortality experience. Now I'm saying, that's wrong. Our, our very reason for existing is to pay claims, and we're not doing that. And I think I would urge all of you to try that mindset change in your daily work. Try and see, put yourself in the, in the customer's shoes. Thanks, very uh, valuable comment there. Um, further questions from the floor? Hi, um, I have what I think is probably quite a simple um, question, um, and it's something that I've been struggling with for a while. Does market segmentation um, help TCF or hurt TCF? I'm specifically thinking now about um, our lower income market segments and middle income market segments for risk products. And um, over time, I've really struggled to understand why we are comfortable with extracting such um, generous margins from the lower income segment. I understand that we justify it by saying it's riskier and people are averse to underwriting, etc., etc. But if you were to put both products on the table in front of someone and explain to them that you're going to get uh, more value from money if you're willing to just have a couple of pricks, um, would that change the story? And, and is it okay that we still continue to sort of box people um, and indirectly possibly um, treat them unfairly by just segmenting them in the first place. Uh, Johan, you look like you want to volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you, Niklas. Um, uh, Alfred, maybe you made a lot of comments. Number one, I, th I, think we, I think we must talk about segmentation or the value of segmentation. That's actually inherent uh, sort of uh, a question that and I've also seen, not necessarily, I've seen the opposite as well, you know, certain market segments where we believe, you know, customers are being potentially exploited, margins aren't, that's great. But I think the key is, I think at a principle level, I think that's where we need to start. You're asking the outcome uh, question, but 
I mean, at a principal level, logic dictates that if you focus on a segment's needs well, you should be able to construct sol appropriate solutions for that customer segment. So I think then, the, the, uh, the, uh, from a business perspective, you know, what do you invest? What is your intent? Do you really understand that client? Are you able to construct an outside in view, sort of, uh, you know, from that? for that customer in terms of products, then I would say it should be beneficial. It should support TCF. You've raised, however, interesting uh, a question. Now, you don't see it in practice. Now, maybe, I mean, I don't know if anybody else here would like to add to that, but I'm from a principal level. I certainly think segmentation is a good thing. Um, uh, Nina, yes, help me. Uh. <laughs> so I'm, I, I, I think on segmentation, the... Um, if we look to the UK, that's probably the strongest in conduct, the, the strongest regulator. They, if you look at the cases brought to them, it's either through media, because they've got a very active and informed media in this space, but, but the other two main indicators they use in their, their audits is the profitability and the claims ratio. So, so those two is, is what they look at. So, but generally, Across the world, it is regarded that segmentation leads to a better understanding of the need. But on top of that, I will put the moral or ethical or whatever argument that I think in South Africa and maybe in Africa generally, we, we very quickly go towards banking the unbank, insuring those that are not insured, providing credit for those that can't prove income, and, and all of those statements that actually gives us the moral high ground in saying that is our business model. But if we really analyze those products and, 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 um, and if we start just maybe with a granting of credit, we, we grant the credit, we can't do the, the income assessment and we say it is a mother who needs to buy school clothes for children and that is the arguments we make in court around this. We grant the credit, within three months of not paying, that interest-free six-month loan become a 12-month fully interest loan with collection fees. On top of that, there's usually insurance product. There's, there's many things we throw in. And if you actually look at it, you very quickly get to a disproportionate profit margin on, on the entire suite of products sold on the basis of giving a mother a chance to buy a pair of school, school shoes. So, so I do think in that, and, and I'm not sure this is deliberate. I think we, we start with a moral intent and then the product develop in a certain way. But I think we do need to put our lenses on and say, when we get to these project um, profit margins that's that outside the norm, we do have to, to ask, wh why is it that that happens? Is it simply a risk adjustment? Or is it just so easy to get those margins in that segment? No. All right, the last question from the floor. Hello, I had the pleasure of attending the African Insurance uh, Forum and there was a Kenyan actuary who made a comparison between um, insurance and uh, Bitcoin. And he said the argument that the insurance products are complex relative to the Bitcoin has always been the reason why we have um, been unable to penetrate certain markets. Bitcoin, uh, in his presentation, has overtaken penetration uh, within Africa. So from that context, he said, we don't have an excuse. So this speaks to the policy wordings. Uh, when I read through a policy wording, I'd like to think my education was comprehensive. I failed to understand it myself fully. So 
So how do we expect consumers to then be able to read a policy wording and understand? And I think uh, it speaks to Nina, your comment about expectations. So why is it that we're not looking at simplifying some of the details so that they're able to be understood by a normal person? Um, anyone wants to comment on that? Charles, you're smiling, so. <laughs> 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 I'm just smiling because it's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> the, the, uh, so, um, uh, okay, so, so uh, that, that was a rather complicated um, sort of state, uh, I think, statement kind of question. Um, I, I think uh, we, um, uh, the, 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 the actual question was about uh, explaining the policy. Um, I think we just underestimate the amount of work involved in doing so. And, um, uh, and uh, it's not just work at the point of sale, it's work uh, beyond the point of sale. Um, and uh, that's gonna cost us time, or uh, the companies we serve, uh, time and money. Um, and uh, um, it's very difficult to um, put forward an um, investment case to do that, uh, even though I think it is, it is worthwhile. Um, so so I, I think we've, it, it, we've got a big challenge. If I can go back to the earlier question on, on uh, the um, profitability of um, uh, products at the uh, sort of low, lower end of the market, particularly funeral products, um, it's, it's not just about the pricing, it's, it's also about a failure of competition. Um, and um, I, I'm going to uh, answer the question with a question, which is, why hasn't competition resulted in rates coming down to uh, what, what um, might be um, a lo lower or sort of m m might imply a, a better rate of return to policyholder? I actually don't know the answer to that because there's so many companies operating in this space, you'd have thought um, in rates should come down. All right, uh, thank you very much. I think uh, in the interest of time, we uh, need to close the session. Um, maybe just a last comment from me. Uh, if I've been serving on the Fair Practice Committee of uh, MMI for, me, for many years, and, and clearly the legacy issues and dealing with legacy issues is a, is a big theme. And what was considered fair 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, is, is uh, looking through today's lens, looking at the six outcomes, not necessarily fair, and quite often, We've not communicated often enough with historical policyholders in the past, kept them up to date, managed their expectations. So uh, clearly that's a, a big area of responsibility for actuaries, but, but I guess we also need to ask ourselves, are we adding to the legacy issues that the next generation will have to deal with in, in what we're doing today? So let's at a minimum try to minimize further legacy issues and let's try and deal as well as we can with, with the historical issues. Uh, Thank you very much to the panelists. It's certainly been very interesting. It's a very broad topic, so we've just scratched the surface. Clearly, you are welcome to engage any of the panelists uh, uh, directly um, afterwards uh, in, the, in the tea and coffee session that will now follow. Um, Nina is actually not a member of the Actuarial Society, so she gets a special gift today. Um, so Nina, uh, please uh, come and get your gift. I should have stayed designed for later. <laughs> Yes, and please just uh, give the panel a round of applause. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, 
we're supposed to reconvene at 10.30, I guess 10.35 we'll, we'll also do. So enjoy the tea and coffee.